listening to Skylight, the Skylight Books podcast. Skylight Books is a general interest bookstore in the Los Feliz neighborhood in Los Angeles. You can shop with us from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. or visit us online 24-7 at skylightbooks.com. Follow along at Skylight Books Instagram and Twitter. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening, and now on to the episode. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Skylit. This is the Skylight Books podcast, and I'm your host, Steph Karp. Today, we're so excited to welcome John Hale to discuss his new book, The Choice We Face, How Segregation, Race, and Power Have Shaped America's Most Controversial Education Reform Movement. John is in conversation today with Eddie Cole. Before I introduce them, I want to remind you that Skylight Books is open for in-store browsing every day from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m., We ask that you continue to be kind and respectful to our booksellers and your fellow shoppers when you visit us. You can find us online 24-7 at skylightbooks.com, where you can shop and learn about our upcoming events. And now to introduce our guests. Dr. John N. Hale is a professor of educational history at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign and an advocate for quality public education. Hale's research in education has been published in The Atlantic, CNN.com, Education Week, The American Scholar, and the African-American Intellectual History Series. His books include The Freedom Schools and To Write in the Light of Freedom. Dr. Eddie R. Cole is Associate Professor of Higher Education and Organizational Change at UCLA. He's the author of The Campus Color Line, College Presidents and the Struggle for Black Freedom, published by by Princeton University Press in 2020. Dr. Cole's scholarship and public writing has been featured in the Washington Post, Los Angeles Times, and Chronicle of Higher Education. He's also appeared on BBC World News and C-SPAN Book TV. In 2021, he was named by Education Week as one of, quote, the top university-based scholars in the U.S. who did the most last year to shape educational practice and policy. Welcome, John, and welcome, Eddie. We're thrilled to have you today. Yes, it's great to be here, and thank you so much. So the excerpt that I'm reading from today is from The Choice We Face. It is uh, the first chapter called The Divine Right and Our Freedom of Choice in Education. The venerated congressman and civil rights activist John Lewis was 14 years old in 1954 when the Supreme Court ruled in the Brown v. Board of Education decision that school segregation was unconstitutional. The ruling held tremendous potential for the young Lewis, who was acutely aware of of the indignities of a Jim Crow education. Attending school in Pike County, Alabama, Lewis rode daily past white schoolhouses that were, he later remembered, very sleek, very modern, with nice playground equipment outside. Nothing like our cluster of small cinder block buildings with the dirt field on which we played at recess and the privies out back. To get to school, he and his peers shared a bus a rattling, rusty jalopy, as he called it, an old hand-me-down. It was prone to stalling. Lewis recalled several occasions when he emptied out of the bus with his classmates to shoulder the lumbering vehicle back onto the muddy road to complete the trip to school. The accumulated slights of segregation, from school buses to schoolhouses, 
were daunting to young people like Lewis trying to make it in America. Yet the Brown decision and the struggle to achieve it offered hope. Education for Lewis, like millions of others, was a civil right. The acquisition of literacy was the means to citizenship, greater opportunity, a path toward upward mobility that was promised in the rhetoric surrounding education in the United States. It held a deeper meaning of freedom and resistance. Those enslaved and oppressed by Americans' racial caste system attached a liberating significance to literacy and passed it down to each generation. I had a wonderful teacher in elementary school who told me, read my child, read. And I try to read everything, Lewis later recalled. I was obsessed with learning all I could about the world beyond the one I knew. And that's why the school library became like a second home to me. For Lewis's teachers and elders, education represented an almost mythical key to the kingdom of America's riches, the kingdom so long denied. Black newspapers found in Lewis's second home printed victorious declarations about the decision. The Amsterdam News proclaimed, the Supreme Court decision is the greatest victory of people since the Emancipation Proclamation. The popular Chicago defender postulated that the decision meant the beginning of the end of the dual society in American life. The Pittsburgh Courier editorialized, the conscience of America has spoken through its constitutional voice. Idealism and social morality can and do prevail in the United States, regardless of race, creed, or color. On the other side of the American racial divide that cut across Pike County in Alabama, however, whites vilified the decision. They cursed it. They broadcast their disdain for the decision through the pages of the Southern press. As one editorial in Jackson, Mississippi stated, May 17, 1954 may be recorded by future historians as a black day of tragedy for the South. The Clarion Ledger of Mississippi noted, the ruling will go down in history as the most unwise, unnecessary, unfair, and ineffective decision that the Supreme Court has ever made. The very prospect of desegregation prompted the Speaker of the House in Mississippi, Walter Sillers, to note that he would gladly give up his property and his life if necessary to preserve the integrity of segregation. After the Brown decision, there was no issue issue likelier to stir turmoil in the United States in education. People of color demanded a better education, which included additional litigation in support of black children's right to enroll in white schools across the nation. Students joined civil rights activists and used other nonviolent means to reform and indeed transform the schools. Activists demanded a curriculum more inclusive of black history, stronger representation on student councils, and fairer treatment in schools. Whites, by and large, resisted, employing every legal and extra-legal means at their disposal. During John Lewis's accomplished career as a student, civil rights movement leader, and statesman in the U.S. House of Representatives, equal and quality education would become defined as a civil right by many African Americans and movement allies. But white segregationists defined school choice as an inherent right the right and struggle to choose schools stems from this deep-seated racialized tension. John Lewis and those black children who came after him would never know the equality promised by the Brown decision. The educational landscape forever changed to accommodate the right for white families to choose the school they wanted to attend. Powerful, powerful, powerful. John, what a great passage. Um, 
that you just shared with us. And look, if you're listening to this, you got to go get a copy. Okay, you got to go get a copy of the choice we face um, by John Hill. Uh, hey, how you doing, John? Great to be in conversation with you. Eddie, I'm doing well. Thanks so much. And thank you for the kind words, too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, thank you for your work on this. Uh, such an important, timely conversation, uh, a topic that has been with us for years. But I mean, coming, you know, coming through a global pandemic and all the questions right now about schools, right, uh, and schooling and even how we're debating in this very moment around vaccines or no vaccines. Uh, it centers around this idea of choice, right? Um, but something that's really interesting, I'm struck by just thinking about your work and how we think about the word choice today. We've got to talk about that. I'm going to ask you to talk about choice itself because from the passage you shared about John Lewis growing up in Alabama, fast forward to today, when people talk about choice, people who are advocates for school choice don't talk about how it's racialized. Right, so it's, so it's clear post Brown versus Board of Education that race is at the center of this conversation around choice. But when we fast forward 60, 70 years, right? <laughs> Not so much. Uh, talk to us about that and how do you grapple with that in the book and just talk, let's just talk about choice in this history or lack thereof, this ahistorical perspective of it. Yeah. So. You know, I like how you framed that question because it, it really shows how complicated choice can be. And not only that it can be quite complicated, but also that we really don't take the time to realize the history behind it. So in, in, in the book, I trace choice from its origins right after the Brown decision and where white segregationists were, came up with an idea of freedom of choice to avoid attending de uh, desegregated schools. Mm -hmm. So a lot of segregationists argued that we should have the freedom to choose where we go to school. The federal government does not have a right to tell me where to go to school, indicating, of course, they, they shouldn't tell me to go to a, to a desegregated school. So this is sort of the, the, the racist history of school choice. And we see this cycle throughout history. We see this repeat itself. It's freedom of choice, and then it's this leads to privatization where people should have not only a right to attend private schools, but that the government should provide a voucher to support the, the, or to pay for the cost of going to a private school. So we see this racist history sort of repeat itself, but also evolve over time. Now it's connected with privatization and vouchers and an assault on public education. But at the same time, we see a, a development within black communities, specific, specifically civil rights communities and activists, where in the late 1960s, it becomes clear to those involved in the movement that desegregation will never occur in, such, in an equitable way where everybody receives a quality education. Too many people are resisting desegregation. White families are leaving cities because of desegregation. The system is crumbling. So black activists begin to demand community control or control of schools. So it starts to, to sort of connect to these ideas of choice. Let's control our own schools. Instead of trying to go to a desegregated school where no one wants us there anyways, let's go create our own school. Here's where we begin to see the development of freedom schools, Black Panther liberation schools. In the 1980s, one of the strongest Black 
school choice advocates, Howard Fuller, works with Derrick Bell, the legal theorist behind critical race theory, and they propose a plan in the city of Milwaukee uh, in Wisconsin where they want to create an all-Black school district. And this appeals to Republicans who talk about school choice. Why not support African-Americans and want to create their own school district? So you can begin to see how it's racialized. So sometimes we have to ask, well, who's talking about school choice and why? Is it to privatize and leave a system? Or is it to control, to control their own schools? Because parents can handle education of their own children the best. We shouldn't trust people who, who are um, in, endorsing a racist curriculum. So it becomes complicated. Mm. And while all this is going on, we still have someone like Betsy DeVos who takes an ahistorical perspective and, and claims that the black community has consistently used school choice with HBCUs, for instance. The idea that this was school choice when in reality it was segregation by law, that's not school choice. So there's a lot of misunderstanding and there's a lot to really sort of work through in terms of who's talking about choice and why. And that's what I attempt to do in the book is to clarify this and really say race is at the center of school choice. Mm, mm, you know, that's, that's savvy. Um, I think I thank you for just sharing, giving us that flavor, that little snippet. Um, readers are definitely going to appreciate your clarity on, you know, choice, the history of it, and as many complexities, right? I really appreciate you sharing an example about Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and um, having some conservative support to that idea, right? But sort of the why behind it is important. You know, something that is sitting with me, just listening to your comments thus far, is, you know, <laughs> we can go back really far and sort of think of this idea of state rights, right? Versus the federal government, right? And so at the same time, um, if you want to do it on a smaller scale within a state, um, instead of it being the state house, you get to say neighborhood, right? Um, and, you know, I'm really intrigued by this idea of uh, neighborhood schools as well, right? And that in its relationship and connection to school choice. And I, I ask this because, you know, in my work, even though I study higher education and we're talking about K-12 right now, the connection is clear. Right. Uh, I think the many conversations we've had over the years is clear that <laughs> the issue of race and education uh, jumps across uh, academic levels, per se. But this idea of higher education and its role in housing and then you think about neighborhood schools and proximity to certain things. Right. So where certain look certain neighborhoods by racial demographics are um, scattered throughout you know, the U.S. Um, I love to hear you sort of think more, you know, share with us a little bit about this connection, how we think about neighborhood schools, because people love that idea, like this is my local school and this is where I go, this is my choice and who can and can't go there. Uh, this is all connected, talk to us, John. Yeah, so that's a really interesting point. And I remember, you know, I was in the Chicago archives and you and I were talking, Eddie I, I called the episode, what are some, you know, what can you recommend? I mean, there, there's a, a, so many sources in the city of Chicago itself. It's a great microcosm of what's happening across mm -hmm. the entire country. Chicago is also interesting because Milton Friedman is there at the University of Chicago proposing school choice, right? So in the city of Chicago, in other Northern cities, we begin to see rhetoric around neighborhood schools, especially around desegregation. And this does pick up in the South too, but we really, if we look at a city like Chicago, um, I strategically look at the city of Chicago and specifically neighborhood schools because this is outside of the South. Too many times people say, oh, you know, freedom of choice. Yeah, that happened in South Carolina, Mississippi, Louisiana. 
but really where, where strong advocates are in cities like Chicago. And you begin to see people sort of defend, specifically white families and white neighborhood associations defend their quote unquote neighborhood schools. Mm. The issue here is that the neighborhood school is a construct um, to, to really say, this is the white school that I've been going to and that my parents went to or that our family's going to. And we moved here to go to this school. It, you know, it's a, basically a white school. This is our school. But you can talk about segregation, for instance, and not say a segregated school. Mm-hmm. It's a neighborhood school. But when you're there, you, 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 know, you see it, it's an all-white school. The, so it not only is an issue, is it, is it a rhetorical device to employ the phrase neighborhood school as coded language for a white school, but it also implies that everyone had a fair and equal opportunity to move to that neighborhood. Mm. But as we know, right, mm-hmm. and Dr. Cohen, your work and in many conversations, that there's a long history in the United States of redlining in which real estate agents and home loans were only distributed to either white families to, to build homes and so that you didn't allow people of color to take out loans to build their own um, homes or put, you know, corral, if you will, try to, you know, in the city like Chicago, Great Migration, millions of African-Americans coming up to the city of Chicago, you're placing them in districts determined by real estate agents and the local government about where people can live. This is going to be a black neighborhood. This is going to be a Latinx or Hispanic neighborhood. This is going to be a neighborhood, you know, for, this is a, a white neighborhood. And they color code these maps to put people in particular neighborhoods to keep the city segregated. So these neighborhoods, they are not natural development. These are, these are, you know, um, codified by law. Laws and policies are in place to create white neighborhoods and black neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. So Chicago really reflects this. And not only that, you know, you were discussing about, you know, colleges and institutions of higher education. The University of Chicago, you know, as you discuss um, in, in your work, and of course, looking at Campus Color Line, universities are front and center for how they, you know, in, in their words in the 1950s, protect their neighborhoods or to, you know, clear out the slums is language you hear, mm-hmm. slum clearance, right? In other words, urban renewal projects. So the University of Chicago is trying to keep their neighborhood white, essentially, but they'll come up with policies about urban renewal, which is effectively displacing Black and African-American families across the city. So here we have neighborhood schools, but it's really a reflection of racist policy and uh, laws supporting segregation for decades. Yeah. When someone says they're going to a neighborhood school, that they're talking about a white school that's actually right in segregated by law. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's spot on. Um, absolutely. So l- let me ask you this, because you you talked about institutions, you talked about policy, and I'm gonna say it three times: policy, 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 right? Because we oftentimes see sort of local decisions and thinking in terms of choice in neighborhood schools. And we think, hey, that's this house, that's this house, it's this family. But there's a bigger thing happening here, right? There's, you talk about systemic uh, oppression and just perpetuation of ongoing systems that continue um, you know, racism and many forms of uh, anti-Black racism at that. 
Uh, I got a you know, let me just ask this, because uh, I want you to say a little bit more about educational policy um, and how this policy piece um, ends up replicating itself nationally. Because Chicago, again, in my work, we see how the University of Chicago post-World War II, uh, really even before World War II, is very much adamant in sort of maintaining a predominantly white neighborhood near its campus. And you see administrators from that university go as far as lobbying before Congress and having Oval Office um, meetings that shape federal housing policy, right? And obviously housing, your neighborhood impacts, you know, educational uh, opportunities uh, locally. But that's Chicago, but this is a national story, right? So anybody, I don't care where you're listening to this, right? This book is likely applicable to you because this is a national perspective, right? That question of school choice isn't just a Chicago or Midwest thing, is unfolding everywhere. Can you talk to us a little bit about educational policy and how we see it replicated across the country, uh, perhaps some other examples that's relevant to this as well? Yeah, no, thank you, and you're exactly right. So a lot of times school choice, we you know, try to put geographic boundaries on this and say this is a Southern construct, or maybe in cities like Chicago that try to avoid civil rights enforcement, but it's happening e everywhere. So there's this transition that happens when it moves as a Southern sort of uh, means to maintain segregation. And when you start to have um, advocates like Milton Friedman, who's at University of Chicago, and you have um, a, a Boston busing committee to avoid busing and desegregation in the city of Boston, for instance. In other words, once desegregation moves north of the Mason-Dixon line, once northern cities and northern families are or be, face the prospects of going to desegregated schools, people are quick to jump on board with this idea of school choice because it, it doesn't sound, when, when you think about it rhetorically, it doesn't sound like a racist violence policy. It sounds fair. Yeah, we should have a choice to choose. We have a freedom of association in this country. I should be able to choose where my kids go to school. People can get on board on that. In the city of Boston, for instance, the, the entire Boston busing crisis in the early, early to mid-1970s, you have discussion about not only neighborhood schools, but I don't want to put my kids on a bus. I, why do we have to put my kids on a bus and go all the way across the town when we have, as we discussed, a neighborhood school three blocks away? So it becomes, you know, school choice becomes a national way to talk about segregated versus desegregated schools without talking about race. This is sort of the underpinning of colorblind ideology. It gives Northerners who don't identify with Southern segregationists a way to say, I want to go to a white only school, but not sound racist, right? It becomes a con very convenient rhetorical tool for people to use. And you see this all over the media. You see politicians, right? Uh, Joe Biden, friends, we saw that, you know, mm -hmm. come, come up this summer with Kamala Harris and others about how were really politicians talking about this? How were they, you know, supporting segregation, but through insidious means that weren't the violent means used in the South? Mm -hmm. So it becomes a national sort of platform. Now let's flash forward a little bit, right? As the federal government begins to support um, let's, uh, by the early 1990s under Bill Clinton, charter schools. They begin wow. to sort of support these schools of choice because it has worked itself into federal policy 40 years after the Brown decision. By the 1990s, people are very comfortable with the idea of school choice and going to a charter school. On paper, it looks equal. It looks like everybody can, can attend. 
you know? So these sounds like great solutions to that failing public school. So, you know, within 40 years of federal government, and that is a huge victory for school choice advocates because they start channeling and funneling money into charter schools. We start to see vouchers gain more credibility at the federal level as well. So once it moves outside of the South, we really see a national and, and federal sort of policy directive that embraces school choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's um, that's spot on again about the the sort of national perspective to this, and it's the slow creep, if you will, from um, how at the local level people reacted to Brown versus Board of Education in '54, and Brown too in '55, frankly. Um, all the way up to the fast forward into the 1990s and just see how, you know, a generation later, uh, it just becomes sort of a natural aspect of how we think about education with no questions asked. Um, Let me sort of hit you with one of these sort of big ticket sort of wrap up questions, if you will. And I think uh, education is at the heart of, you know, so many things in life, not just the physical schools that we're talking about right now, but just really how it guys this idea. There's so many beliefs, so many myths, really, right? <laughs> the myth of education from meritocracy, right? If you work hard, you'll get your shot, right? Or, you know, fair application process, right? Everybody gets reviewed evenly, right? And so we can go down the list, right? Uh, let's talk about the myths of education and how this narrative around choice um, plays into that when the reality may tell us something differently because you really lay it out for us in the book, but uh, tell us a little bit more about it. So that's a really good point about the sort of the mythology that sound, surrounds not only American edu- or education in the United States, but the mythology around school choice. And one, there's this idea, and we see this playing out now with critical race theory in, in the 1619 project, that schools should somehow be divorced from politics, but our earliest writings from, you know, from the first advocates of a public school system, like Thomas Jefferson, for instance, right, talks about the role of education and developing a country, right? It's for political purposes, it's here to train citizens, right, mm-hmm. to participate in the democracy. So our earliest writings in public education in the United States very much politicizes education. So, but yet we tell ourselves today it's not. So that's one of the greatest myths that I think we have to sort of work through. Specifically in regard to school choice, there are so many assumptions that are made in endorsing school choice that makes it from the start a very flawed problematic policy. One of the largest myths here is that the marketplace, if you will, if you look at um, how people talk about school choice, that there's an educational marketplace. Well, you assume that this marketplace is equal. Let's go back to Chicago, for instance. And again, to your point, you know, a microcosm, um, it, it, this is reflected across the country. So in every, any given city, but let's look at Chicago specifically. We have this educational marketplace that is far from equal. You have white neighborhood associations at times employing violence, right? And literally physically removing black families from particular neighborhoods once they move legally into a neighborhood. This is far from equal. This is not an equal sort of setting that, that we're moving into. Um, there's another assumption that the application process, as you alluded to, Eddie, that it's fair. Well, not everyone has access to these applications. Not everyone knows how school choice works. It's, it's, it's a complicated, convoluted method to get into a particular school you want. There, when I was living and working and teaching in Charleston, South Carolina, 
people and parents, particularly white parents, had sort of organization and clubs to share this information. You had to know who, who this network was, you had to get into this network. You know, sometimes to take a application, it's a, everyone can take this test to get into one of the best magnet schools in Charleston, but people were paying tutors to pass this test to get into the school. So that's an unequal footing. That's not an equal or fair application process. And finally, another one too, is that we are all rational actors making decisions. Economists like Milton Friedman love to think that we're all rational beings, right? Well, in the 1950s, again, as, as I read in that excerpt, there is no issue likelier to stir turmoil among Americans than desegregation. People start acting on fear, ignorance, and hatred. And when you start making decisions about where to school, all of a sudden you're not a rational actor, you're being motivated by fear and ignorance to go to the school. That whole model, if it's based on rational actors, is gonna fall apart if people are making choices out of fear. And that's in many ways what school choice is. People don't want to go to a public school, they've heard terrible things about it. They want to avoid it at all costs and many times don't even step foot in the schools. So choice provides it out. So there's a lot of mythology. There's a lot of misunderstanding about what school choice is and is, is a write about in the book to, to the detrimental impact of all students across the country. Mm. I, I, look, if you're listening to this and you just heard that, I think that's enough for you to know that you need to go pick up a copy of The Choice We Face by my good friend, historian, uh, phenomenal scholar, uh, John Hill at the University of Illinois uh, on Beacon Press now. Uh, this has been a great conversation, John. I mean, we can't privy everybody to listen to all of the things we usually talk about, but this is just a little snippet of the things we've been talking about for years. And I'm so happy for you. Congratulations on this great book. Thank you. I appreciate that. And I also have to say, it's, it's hard to you know talk about it in, in 30, 40 minutes, but also without the Eddie Cole's book, Campus Color Line, I had that in the archives with me. You know, I was referencing and we we're talking about how it was working. So, I mean, what, what a great book and resource as we wade through the incredibly complicated history uh, of education and what we need to do today. Thank you to you both for this really, really thoughtful conversation. Today's guests were John Hale and Eddie Cole. You can order John's new book, The Choice We Face, at skylightbooks.com. Thanks for listening. We hope to see you soon. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon. <laughs>